Father, thank you for your servant Daniel and for the book that you wrote through his hand. And I thank you so much, Father, for the reminder of the kingdom that this book brings us to. I pray that our eyes be focused on your kingdom, on your coming, and on what you're doing right now in the world to prepare for that. We just want to be on board, Lord. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray your teaching in our hearts, in our minds this morning. Help us to hear you and to hear your word. As you intend, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 7, verse 1 says, O Lord my God, in you I have taken refuge. Save me from all those who pursue me and deliver me, or he will tear my soul like a lion, dragging me away while there is none to deliver. Every accusation against my faith is an avenue for God to be praised. Every oppression is an opportunity for God to be glorified. Every criticism is cause for the worship of Christ. We see that in the life of Daniel this morning as we come to one of the most beloved Bible stories of all time. The story of Daniel in the lion's den. It is the stuff of great fables and fairy tales from days of yore. And yet, every single word of this story is true. And I ain't lying. <laughs> Let's just get it out of the way right up front, Joe. You know? And we'll just take care of it right now. Because there's so much here if you're willing to read between the lions. Did you hear that lions are actually uh, religious animals? They are. They uh, pray often. <laughs> although, although they do have a problem with pride. So, you know, that's kind of an issue. Most lions are on a, a unique diet, the paleo diet. <laughs> All right, let's get back to the main story. <laughs> the main, main story? You catch that one? The main? Okay. Sorry. If we don't move on, I'm going to have to claw my way out of this. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6 said, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. Be sober of spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Daniel chapter 6 picks up almost immediately after Daniel chapter 5. Not just in format, but in history. Somewhere between 539 and 537 B.C., this story takes place. I'm going to actually start in verse 31 of chapter 5 as we roll on into chapter 6. Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom and over them three commissioners of whom Daniel was one. That these satraps might be accountable to them and that the king might not suffer loss. Now, I love the little details of Scripture. The things in the Bible that are pointed out to us that we would often easily skip over but have great significance, like chapter 5, verse 31. Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. Okay, big deal, and on we move. But we don't even know how old Daniel is. And we can make some guesses based on the time and history and everything. You know, he's probably getting the senior discount at the Babylon Cafe. (laughs) But we don't have an age given for Daniel, yet we do for this king, Darius. This this man who now takes over the rule of Babylon after it falls to the Medes and the Persians. We were given his nationality. His nationality and his exact age. Why? Well, let's stop for a minute and ask the question, who is this man? The Hebrew is actually Daryavesh. Daryavesh is probably closer to how you might pronounce it. It means holder of the scepter. Daryavesh. And it's probably not his name. It is probably a title. In fact, we've seen this title given a number of different times, more than once in the Bible. There's more than one Daryavesh in Scripture. 
Josephus and Herodotus tell us that many different uh, rulers, leaders in this time, held this title. Holder of the scepter, the Daryavesh. The book of Ezra talks about another Daryavesh who ruled Persia after Cyrus, which is about 20 years after the story that we're in right now. Different guy, same title. Well, some say this Daryavesh in Daniel was actually Cyrus himself. Others come along and say, no, no, it wasn't Cyrus, it was his son, Cambyses. That Cyrus assigned Cambyses to be ruler in Babylon. And the Bible makes a very clear distinction we need to understand. Cyrus was a Persian. This man is a Mede. Darius the Mede. Daniel chapter 5 verse 31, Daniel chapter 9 verse 1, Daniel chapter 11 verse 1, all call out this Daryavesh as a Mede. Daniel chapter 6 verse 28 refers very specifically to Cyrus the Persian. And again, Daniel chapter 10 verse 1, Cyrus the Persian. And we need to understand as we study Scripture, God doesn't just throw around His words loosely, oh, Persian, Mede, whatever. No, He's specific and He is intentional in His word. And so saying that this Darius is Cyrus or even his son is a bit sketchy historically. So who is this guy? Archaeological and historical evidence point to a certain man. I I think that this is probably the guy we're talking about. A man chosen by Cyrus to be the governor king of Babylon in 539 B.C. This man was empowered to make appointments, to assemble an army, to levy taxes, to possess the Babylonian palaces, and to make laws. His name was Gubaru. I kid you not, and perhaps this is why he wanted to be called Darius. If my name was Gubaru, I might look for another title as well. But he was not only a Mede, this Gubaru, he was a Mede, but also, check this out, he was born in 601 B.C. How old does that make him in 539 B.C.? 62, which is exactly the age that we're told of this king ruler. The specifics of the Bible, if you will pause and look at them, he's a Mede and he's 62 years old, and this Gubaru was a Mede and was 62 years old as he came to govern Babylon. So this is probably who we're talking about. Have you heard the old phrase, the devil is in the details? Not where Scripture is concerned. The devil is not in the details of Scripture. The truth is, Psalm 119, 160, the sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting, which is why Jesus prayed in John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. I've said it before, and I will say it again. Every word is inspired. That the Lord knows what He's doing when He writes Scripture. And that it is not haphazard, but it is intentional if we will pause to see why. Verse 3. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary, or some of your Bibles say excellent, I like extraordinary, an extraordinary spirit, and the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. Well, then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs, but they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Then these men said, we will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. Now, Daniel is not a young man at this point. He was in his probably late 80s by the time we get to chapter 6. But he's suddenly thrust back into the political realm. And these covetous commissioners and these shifty satraps couldn't get to Daniel. They had tried. He'd been in government a long time. They couldn't find him wrong on any count of governmental misconduct. Do you realize how incredible that is? I mean, some only need a few months. Daniel had been in government for upwards of 60 years. And they couldn't find anything on him. Nothing would stick. Why? Because Daniel was an extraordinary man. Some things to note about the prophet. Number one, Daniel possessed an extraordinary spirit. And I was already asked about this this morning. 
how do I get that extraordinary spirit? How do I get a spirit like that? I want to be like that. Now, the Bible doesn't say so explicitly, but implicitly he appears to be one of those Hebrew saints that truly was blessed with the indwelling spirit of God. How can you say that, Rick? Well, we see the fruit. The fruit is all over Daniel's life. And speaking in the spirit of prophecy, as we will see, Daniel has the Holy Spirit. I say that's rare for the Hebrew saints because in the days prior to Christ's coming and prior to the church, God didn't wholesale pour out His Spirit. He gave His Spirit to those to whom He chose to give His Spirit. But you didn't have it simply because you were a Jew. David received the Spirit of God. Saul did, but it was removed from him. And so God only gave His Spirit to those that He saw fit to give His Spirit to. And I believe Daniel is one of these. But the Lord promises, Isaiah chapter 4, verse 3, I will pour out water on the thirsty and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out My Spirit on your offspring and My blessing on your descendants. And they will spring up among the grass like poplars by streams of water. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 and 2, A shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit, speaking of Jesus. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And I would advise you, I would encourage you, that these are the attributes of the Holy Spirit and the things to which we must look. Oftentimes people will skip right over the attributes and right past the fruit to rush for the gifts. The gifts are given for God's intention and are valuable and are good, but the gifts without the fruit, the gifts without the attributes can be dangerous. Can be and have been misused. And so I always like to go first to Isaiah 11. Wisdom and understanding. Now give me a man with wisdom and understanding. A woman with counsel and strength. A people with knowledge and the fear of the Lord. That's someone who is walking in the Spirit. Because those are the attributes of the Holy Spirit and those are what are seen in an extraordinary life. Daniel has those attributes. And you need to understand if you ask the question, how could I be like a Daniel? How could I have this extraordinary Spirit that God has poured His his Spirit out wholesale on the church today? All you need to do is ask. Would you like the Holy Spirit of the living God? You begin by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. And then you ask the Lord for His Spirit. John 14, 16, Jesus said, I will ask the Father and He will give you another Helper that He may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see Him or know Him. But you know Him because He abides with you and will be in you. And for those who say, well... You know, that's great for some. That's great for the Daniels out there, but I could never be a Daniel. Listen, Daniel couldn't be a Daniel without the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God. So Daniel possessed an extraordinary spirit, but secondly, he presented an extraordinary standing. An extraordinary standing. It's amazing that as the commissioners and the satraps tried to find a ground of accusation or evidence of corruption, there was none. Zip. Zilch. Nothing that they could get against Daniel. His reputation preceded him. His integrity over, again, 60 years was well established. Daniel lived out his faith in public office. Do you? He lived out his faith in the secular workplace. Do I? Do people see and know you to be a follower of Jesus Christ? Based on the evidence of the behavior in your life, the way you treat people, the way you act, and the fact that you live above reproach. Philippians 2.15, Paul said, Prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. And you might say, but I'm not blameless and I'm not innocent. Then prove yourself to be. Start today living that way. Children of God, above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. And the darker the world gets, the brighter the church should be. Simply by living out our faith, empowered by this Holy Spirit living within us. Daniel was extraordinary in standing. Daniel proved to be extraordinarily steadfast. Again, this is a long faithfulness, a long obedience in the same direction. That's what Peterson calls discipleship. A long obedience in the same direction. I like that. 
Don't tell me, oh, I, 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 I've, been a, I've been a believer for two weeks and I'm just on fire. That's great. Talk to me in two years. Show me your faith in a decade. Jake and I have had many conversations about this. The success of a youth ministry is not seen in the youth ministry. It's seen 20 years later. And that is the truth of anyone's following after Jesus. Don't, don't say, look at me, look at my life. I'm such a faithful follower. Prove it. Show me in 20 years. Should the Lord tarry and we still be here. The long haul faithfulness is the proof of the pudding. And Daniel proved to be extraordinarily steadfast. Luke 16, verse 10, Jesus said, He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. He who is unrighteous in a very little thing is also unrighteous in much. Which is why, regardless of what the world says about Washington politicians, character does matter. If you are unfaithful in one area of your life, chances are you're going to be unfaithful in another area. If you will lie in one place, you will lie in another place. Character once established is hard to change. If you've been a waffler, therefore, and not steadfast, you need two things. You need the Holy Spirit and you need the distance. The Holy Spirit and the distance. Be steadfast in your faith. Daniel also produced an extraordinary scent. Verse 5. Verse 5 says, These men said we will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. They could smell it on him. And lions have an intense sense of smell. Did you know that? Interesting. I learned a few things I didn't know about lions. They can smell and detect nearby prey, but more than that, they can tell how recently the prey was nearby. So if they come into an area where there were some antelopes five minutes before that had just run off, the lion can go, yeah, about five minutes. (laughs) They just know they have an amazing sense. They mark their territories by means of what are called scent deposits. I can let you think about that one on your own time. (laughs) They can pick up the scent of blood at a great distance of a wounded animal at a great distance. But they also have this really interesting olfactory organ on the roof of their mouths. So you students of, of lionology, uh, <laughs> perhaps you know this. It's called the Jacobson's organ. And have you ever seen a lion grimace? Like in a zoo or something? They, they, kinda, they don't roar, but they kind of go... <laughs> what they're doing there is they're drawing air over the Jacobson organ to detect the scent of prey, to smell what is nearby. The grimace is actually called flamen. If the lion is tired, it's flame and yawn. So understand that. Second, Second Corinthians chapter 2, talking about this extraordinary scent, because the scent is all over Daniel, and these satraps and these commissioners are smelling it, and they're going, we don't like that. We don't like this guy. I mean, what is there not to like about a governmental official who does the job right? Right? Unless you are a government official not doing the job right. Which is why none of them want to do the job right because they'll stand out. So obviously. (laughs) So Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 15, we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one an aroma from death to death, to the other an aroma from life to life. An extraordinary scent that the lions that prowl this world pick up on and can smell. And Paul makes a statement, he says, who is adequate or who is worthy to these things? Well, I'm not. But the extraordinary spirit that dwells within me, he is worthy. And he will give off a scent. You might say, well, who smells like this? Anyone washed in blood. If you have been, if you are washed in the blood of Jesus, you will give off the scent and you will, like Daniel, be smelled by others as either sweet or foul. And the lions in this world will pick it up. If you've ever wondered why God's people tend to attract such animosity, you know, it's not the hypocrisy and it's not the fact that we're idiots sometimes. We are. We confess that. We admit it. We can make mistakes, major blunders. We can sin like anybody else. We can sin with the best of them. But the reason why Christians are so immediately grabbed hold of and picked on and persecuted for being Christians is this scent. 
It's this sense, if you will, of Jesus about us that makes us different. And Jesus said in Matthew 5.11, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of Me. Rejoice and be glad. Your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Men like Daniel, who had an extraordinary sin. What, What was it about this old man? And again, late 80s. What was so dangerous about him? What did they fear so much about him? To them, he smelled like death. His faith made him uncomfortable because of how they lived. It wasn't just his uniqueness, it was the overall smell that he gave off as a follower of the Lord. And as we'll see, their fear of his smell of death was a legitimate fear to have. So the scent was strong enough to make them grimace. And they knew exactly how to pray on Daniel. Verse 6. Then these commissioners and satraps came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows. King Daryavesh, live forever. And the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps and the high officials and the governors, we have consulted together that a king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. 30 days, so it's not ridiculous. We're not saying that you're a god, but we really want to honor you for the next month. And so they flatter him. And so they stroke his pride, his ego. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. Therefore, King Daryavesh signed the document that is the injunction. And gang, this injunction against prayer is not just the stuff of history. I found this fascinating. The timing of this story to be landing right now. Here is a king in Babylon some 2,500 years ago being asked to sign an injunction against prayer. And the same types of requests for injunctions are going on today. Have you heard of this? Town of Greece versus Galloway. The Supreme Court of the United States of America took up case 12-696 this last week. Town of Greece versus Galloway. The City Council of Greece, New York, a town of 100,000 outside Rochester, opens their monthly meetings with prayer. Being a 90% Christian population, that prayer is largely Christian in nature, although they have, over the last four years, had prayers from a Jewish man, a follower of the Baha'i faith, and a Wiccan priestess who prayed to Apollo and Athena. According to Breitbart News, Thursday, November 7th, The plaintiffs in this lawsuit are asking the Supreme Court to declare that faith-specific content in public prayers violates the Constitution. Let me say that again. Faith-specific content in public prayers that they call sectarian prayers violates the Constitution and so governmental bodies must tell pastors, priests, rabbis, and anyone else giving prayers that they cannot express any belief with which other people of faith might disagree. The plaintiffs in this case were represented by Professor Doug Laycock who had a rough time during the argument. Laycock argued the town should instruct... Well, should have a policy in the first place, which it doesn't, to instruct the chaplains, keep your prayer non-sectarian. To this, Justice Samuel Alito replied, Give me an example of a prayer that would be acceptable to Christians, Jews, Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, Wiccans, Baha'i, etc. And Chief Justice John Roberts interjected, and atheists. When Laycock admitted that there is no prayer an atheist would agree with, making it odd that he would take this approach since one of his clients is an atheist, Alito allowed him to exclude atheists for a moment and reiterated, give me an example of a prayer that is acceptable to all of the religious groups I mentioned. At this point, Laycock made a significant mistake. He asked for one of his team members to hand him a copy of the case record and burned up time looking for such a prayer. He did find one to the Almighty until Alito pointed out that people who do not believe in one single God could not accept it. He tripped over himself again by citing another prayer until he realized, no, I'm sorry, that one ends in Christ's name. (laughs) Scalia provided comic relief by asking, what about devil worshippers? Laycock conceded that group also, answering, well, if devil worshippers believe that the devil is the Almighty, they might be okay, but they're probably out. Roberts then asked skeptically, so, 
There's an official in the town council that is to instruct clergy about what kind of prayer they can pray. That's right, Laycock answered. A decision will be handed down the first week of July 2014. This is before the Supreme Court of the United States of America. A case brought an injunction against public prayer, which is exactly what was going on in Babylon. We're living in Babylon. It's what happens when you live in Babylon. Now you might say, well, Rick, you're just one of those wigged out evangelicals, one of those fear mongers there on the island. No, I'm not, but I see the handwriting on the wall. (laughs) I see so clearly what's going on here. And the reality is we do not live in a lion-free world. We live in a world that is overrun with lions that are agents of the enemy and agents of the devil and the devil himself and he is trying every which way he can to put out faith. To stop now prayer in the public marketplace. Well, in Daniel's case, the law of the land was signed. What did Daniel do? Verse 10. Now, when Daniel heard that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now, in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God, as he had been doing previously. I want to camp out on this verse for a few minutes. Because Daniel practiced an extraordinary supplication. The first thing Daniel did, upon hearing that this law was signed, you may no longer pray publicly unless it is to the Daryavesh. Unless it's to the king. He's the only one that you can pray to for the next 30 days. And Daniel didn't wait 30 days to offer prayer. Didn't just kind of pull back and remain quiet. He went directly home, up to his roof, and began to pray out the windows toward Jerusalem. Which is why I've said, if we ever have an injunction against anything in Scripture being called hate speech, that very next Sunday, you can bet I will be preaching from that passage. And it's not just to be a jerk. Okay, maybe a little bit. (laughs) But it's to be about the truth. Here's the thing that's amazing with Daniel. He didn't go up to pray to impress man, but to address God. You see, what Daniel did was go to the first place he knew to go that he needed to go when this injunction was passed. He didn't go to his friends. He didn't go to the king. He didn't go to these men who tried to bring the law. He didn't immediately go into protest mode. He went into prayer mode. Straight to the Father, straight to the Lord. First thing he did, Lord, and I can guarantee you he was praying about this injunction. And he was doing what he always did. He was not flaunting his faith. John Walvoord said this was not the act of a person courting martyrdom but the continuation of a faithful ministry in prayer which characterized Daniel's long life. And so what do you do when you face a challenge to your own faith? When someone stands up and says, you may not do what your own faith tells you to do. What do you shrink back? No. What do you surge ahead? Daniel did neither one. He prayed. Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Again, we don't have the content of this prayer, but I would be surprised if Daniel wasn't talking about the very ordinance that had just been signed. But notice how he prayed. Notice how he prayed. He prayed humbly. We see that Daniel goes up to his his window prayer area, this upper, this roof chamber, and he continued kneeling on his knees. Down on his knees. Daniel prayed humbly. 80 plus years old. Probably 85, almost 90 years old. And he's on his knees. i, I got to be honest with you. At my age, being on my knees for an extended period of time makes my entire body go to sleep. You know? And Daniel's down on his knees. Why? He's praying humbly like Jesus in Luke twenty-two forty-one, Like Stephen. Acts chapter 7, verse 60. Like Peter, Acts chapter 9, verse 40. Like Paul, Acts chapter 20, verse 36. Like Luke, Acts 21, verse 5. All down on their knees, all bowing humbly before the Lord because that's good posture when you're approaching the one and true King of the universe. 
Turning your Bibles for a moment back to 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings chapter 8. Fascinating to me, the story of, of King Solomon. And 1 Kings 8 tells the story of the dedication. It's dedication day for the very first temple. Solomon's temple is built, the temple to the Lord there in Jerusalem. And all the people are gathered in mass for this wonderful dedication ceremony. And at the dedication, Solomon begins on his feet before the people, hands raised to heaven, standing as a king. But note this, at some point in the prayer, his posture changes. Verse 22, 1 Kings chapter 8. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. And he begins to pray this marvelous, grand, kingly, royal prayer. But look down now in verse 54. At the end of the prayer it says, When Solomon had finished praying this entire prayer and supplication to the Lord, he arose from before the altar of the Lord from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread toward heaven. Start standing with hands raised and he ends kneeling with hands raised. Somewhere in the prayer, Solomon recognized his true position before the Lord. Maybe it was when the Shekinah glory filled the temple. And Solomon saw that. But whatever the case, he ended up on his knees. What's the deal with the kneel? Why pray on your knees? Does it really matter? I mean, can't you just pray on the fly? Can't you just pray while you're driving? Can't you just pray in the shower? Can't you just you know, pray on your way out the door? Why stopping? Why pausing? Why down on the knees? And I'll tell you something about kneeling prayer. It, it puts me in an appropriate position before the Lord. Just the posture positions me to recognize where I stand <laughs> before the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Daniel goes down on his knees. If you don't tend to pray on your knees, I would suggest you try it. Not so that people could see you praying, but so that your heart can be rightly positioned before God. And so that, as the Hebrew writer writes in Hebrews 12, verse 12, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. Strengthen my knees, strengthen my hands to Your service, Lord. How do we do that? We pray like Daniel. We pray humbly. Secondly, Daniel prayed biblically. This man of extraordinary supplication prayed biblically. That is toward Jerusalem. But you're saying that Biblical prayer is prayer toward Jerusalem. It was for Daniel. Absolutely. Still in 1 Kings uh, chapter 8, verse 30, note this. Solomon's praying and he says, Listen to the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place here in heaven, your dwelling place, hear and forgive. Down in verse 46. Solomon prayed, When they sin against you, for there is no man who does not sin, and you are angry with them, and deliver them to an enemy, so that they take them away captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near. If they take thought in the land where they have been taken captive, and repent and make supplication to you in the land of those who have taken them captive, saying, We have sinned and committed iniquity and have acted wickedly. If they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies, who have taken them captive and pray to you toward their land which you have given to their forefathers, the city which you have chosen, the house which I have built for your name. You get it? The land, the city, the house. Israel, Jerusalem, the temple. Then hear their prayer and their supplication in heaven, your dwelling place, and maintain their cause. Understand this. By Daniel's day, that was Scripture. Just as it is for us. The book of the Kings, the scroll of the Kings, was Scripture. And it was Scripture that a young Daniel who grew up, raised by parents in Josiah's day, Scripture Daniel would have known and had been taught. And so when Daniel prayed, he simply prayed biblically. He prayed as mandated by King Solomon. He prayed as, and I believe Solomon was praying prophetically there, because he's talking about their captivity. In fact, Solomon's talking about Daniel without even recognizing it. We'll see that even more in Daniel chapter 9, where Daniel is in Scripture and reading and praying, and he calls out and cries out to the Lord to hear him from a land of captivity toward Jerusalem. He prayed biblically. He prayed the Word. 
Now, I'm not saying that we have to pray toward Jerusalem. I'm just saying pray biblically. Let the Word of God mandate your prayers. Let the Word of God supply your prayers. Well, I don't know how to pray. Pray Scripture. Just open up the Psalms and start praying through the Psalms. It doesn't have to be your words. It will become your Word as His Word grows in you. But pray the Word of God. All that being said, how does God want us to regard Jerusalem today? I was so ticked off when I read about the Supreme Court case. really bugged me. And it really bugged me because I saw an interview with the, wo- the woman. Susan Galloway is her name. The woman who brought suit in the first place. She showed up at the council meeting uh, originally because she wanted uh, fair access to cable TV. And she started noticing that all these prayers from all these Christians were in Jesus' name. It started to bug her. And so she's brought suit and it's made its way all the way up to the Supreme Court. And I'm watching this video of Susan Galloway. (laughs) What is wrong with her? Obviously she wanted cable TV because that's all she does, you know. And I'm thinking all these just not nice things. (laughs) I confess to you all. And then I found out that Susan Galloway is a Jew. And my entire perspective changed. And not because, oh, she's a Jew. But because she's one of the chosen people who has lost her way. And so I started praying for Susan Galloway in Jesus' name. (laughs) Ironic. But the Bible tells us pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Psalm 122. May they prosper who love you. May peace be within your walls and prosperity within your palaces. For the sake of my brothers and my friends, I will now say may peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. And who would have thought that France would be seeking the good of Israel before the United States? If you've been watching the whole Iranian situation, you might want to check that out. Google that when you get home. France is standing up and saying it's unacceptable for Iran to have nukes. The United States is waffling. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Daniel prayed humbly. He prayed biblically. Daniel, this man of extraordinary supplication, also prayed continually. And again, verse 10 tells us he prayed three times a day, quote, as he had been doing. Spurgeon put it this way. This does not tell us how often Daniel prayed, but how often he was in the posture of prayer. Doubtless, he prayed 300 times a day if necessary. His heart was always having commerce with the skies, but thrice a day he prayed formally. And for those of us who want to avoid religion, sometimes the idea of formal postured prayer makes us, you know, a little squeamish. Ah, I don't want to get all religious. Daniel, three times a day, left work, went home, went up to his roof chamber, and prayed three times every day. Well, Yeah, but Rick, I've I've got a busy schedule. Are you uh, one of three commissioners over an entire kingdom? You want to talk about a busy schedule? A man who would have had a lot on his plate, and yet for Daniel, morning, noon, and night, I'm assuming those three times. Before he left for work, at the lunch hour he came and prayed, and then as soon as he got home from work, he was in prayer before the Lord. Three times a day, formally, on his knees, before the open window, hands raised to heaven, praying to the Lord. He wasn't doing anything different on this day that he didn't do every single day for the last 60 years. Continually praying. Do we make time for formal prayer? Do we schedule it in? How about putting a digital alert on my iPhone just to beep three times a day? That I get used to stopping and praying formally. The Bible says pray without ceasing. And I absolutely believe in that. And I believe that our prayer should be relational and conversational and consistent throughout the day. But to stop and pause and pray with specific supplication before the Lord. I'll give you one, by the way. We're figuring now as we're, as we're tracking costs and costs are going up and expenses and everything as we're building the building. Right now we're figuring that when we have exhausted um, what we currently have in the bank and the line of credit, we'll still need about $500,000 to be in. Was that bad planning? No, no, it's called rules and regulations that we are under. 
like $100,000 simply for a pump system to get the water into the building as prescribed by the county. $100,000 for a pump. So the costs are extreme. And, and, and we're looking at, you know, uh, it, it's interesting that this whole thing, Glenn and I have had a lot of conversations about the balance between stewardship and faith. Because you've got to look at the numbers, but you've got to pray in faith. And you need to trust the Lord in faith. And so we're, we're walking both things out. I am absolutely convinced God's going to finish this project. And I'm, I'm convinced He's going to do it sooner as opposed to later. But I'm telling you all, and I'm asking you all to join me to formally pray. Our Father owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He can sell a few cows. We can finish the building. Don't stop praying for the work of God that is going on and is ongoing in the Bridge Fellowship. Pray without ceasing. Well, Daniel prayed without ceasing, and that is when the attack came. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and supplication before his God. And I don't think that Daniel would have even been seen praying if they weren't looking for him to be praying. They just knew this was his M.O. And so they go after him. How (laughs) lion-like. To hunt in packs, they all came together, and to charge your victim. And they charge Daniel here. Psalm 57 verse 4 says, My soul is among lions. I must lie among those who breathe forth fire, even the sons of men, whose teeth are spears and arrows, and their tongue is a sharp sword. Be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let your glory be above all the earth. When did these charges come against Daniel? As he prayed. While he's praying. And you might say, well, it's not fair. He commit, you might say, I'm, I committed myself, Rick, to pray three times every day, and as soon as I started doing it, my life got into a big mess. So I stopped. <laughs> you realize you're far less of a threat to the enemy on your feet than on your knees? But the danger that you can do to Satan's cause in this world is, is weak when we're out there trying to do it as compared to when we are on our knees before the Lord praying about it. When I function on my own power, I limit the Lord in what He does in my life. But when I get down on my knees and seek His power, I become dangerous. And that's why they go after Daniel and make these charges now, because he is dangerous. Verse 12, Then they approached and spoke before the king about the king's injunction Did you not sign an injunction that any man who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for thirty days is to be cast into the lion's den? And the king replied, The statement is true according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. Then they answered and spoke before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction which you signed, but keeps making his petitions three times a day. Then as soon as the king heard this statement, he was deeply distressed and set his mind on delivering Daniel and even until sunset, he kept exerting himself to rescue him. I like this guy. He's caught. He really does like Daniel. But he's caught in all this. And so all day long, the holder of the scepter tried to reverse the law, but he couldn't do it. According to ancient Eastern custom, Execution was swift and immediate, usually within a day of a proven accusation. Very unlike our court system. If you were found guilty, you were executed immediately. And so throughout the day, Darius is working to change it. Trying to, is there anything that we can use to overturn this law? And he couldn't find a single thing. And then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Recognize, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or statute which the king establishes may be changed. And you might think that weird. You might say, well, the king made the law. Can't the king now change the law? In Babylon, that's the way it used to be. The king's word was law, which is probably why Nebuchadnezzar had such a big gold head. However, when the Medes and the Persians came in, the king wasn't the law. The law was the king. Even the king himself could not revoke his own laws, which, by the way, is a sign of a weaker kingdom. You want the ideal government? What you need is you need a perfect king and a perfect law. 
You put both together and you have a perfect kingdom. Psalm 138 verse 2 says, I will bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your loving kindness and your truth. For you have magnified your word above all your name. Or according to all your name. That word either means above or alongside. But the bottom line is God's word is as high as God's name. God's character and God's law, both perfect, the perfect king. And Romans 11.29 tells us the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable because God will never make a law which needs to be revoked. God will never speak something or write an injunction where after the fact He says, oh, I'm caught by my own law. Because God is perfect and His word is perfect. Every word which proceeds out of His mouth is irrevocable because He's perfect. So the king gave orders, verse 16, and Daniel was brought in and cast into the lion's den. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Your God, whom you constantly serve, will Himself deliver you. That's not a prayer of faith. It's a prayer of wishful thinking. But it's kind nonetheless. A stone was brought in and laid over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet rings of his nobles so that nothing would be changed in regard to Daniel. And then the king went off to his palace and spent the night fasting. And no entertainment was brought before him. So he wasn't playing golf. And his sleep (laughs) fled from him. And I love what Spurgeon says. Daniel must have had a glorious night. What with the lions and with the angel to keep him company, he was spending the night watches in grander style than Darius. Verse 19, Then the king arose at dawn at the break of day and went in haste to the lion's den. When he had come near to the den to Daniel, he cried out with a troubled voice. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you constantly serve been able to deliver you from the lions? And then Daniel spoke to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, inasmuch as I was found innocent before him. Notice that. He was innocent before the Lord. It didn't matter if he was innocent before the Daryavesh or the rulers of man. Daniel was innocent before him. And also toward you, O king, I have committed no crime. Oh, wait, but, but Daniel violated the law of the land by praying to another god other than the king, and yet he committed no crime. How can he say that? We remember there is a higher law. There is always the higher law, the law of God. I've said that a couple of times recently, and I'm just saying that to say... If things should go awry in our country, if injunctions against public prayer should ever make it through the Supreme Court, if Bible reading is considered hate speech, we live by a higher law. And Christians, brothers and sisters, I know what the Bible says. I know Romans 13 well. I know the, the, the command that we obey the laws of the land. Yes, in as much as they don't violate the laws of our God. But where God's law is violated, I have a greater responsibility, and that is to the Lord my King. Amen. And so, yes, I will violate. We had some back years ago when we had the cease and desist order put on the barn. Some of you recall that. Don't meet. You can't meet. It's illegal to meet. We will never give you a temporary use permit in that barn. And we have them. But on that Friday, when that notice was put up, the question came out real quickly, do we meet? Of course we do. Absolutely we do. Because we're gathering to worship a higher king. And we were here to worship a higher God. Some didn't come that Sunday morning. They felt like it was in violation of the law of the land. But I'm here to tell you, the law of our king is greater. And I will always follow that first. And that's what the Lord calls us to. That's what Daniel did, which is why he was truly uh, not in violation. It was civil disobedience, but it wasn't against a king, and it wasn't against the king's best interests. In fact, it's very likely that as Daniel was praying to the Lord about this injunction, praying on that day when the injunction came down, he probably was praying for the king. Praying for Darius. You know, Lord, he's he's got himself in a tight spot. Again, we don't know what Daniel was praying. But when you consider the heart of the man and the situation going on, all of that is very likely. Verse 23, when the king 
Well, then the king was very pleased and gave orders for Daniel to be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no injury whatever was found on him because he had trusted in his God. The king then gave orders and they brought those men who had maliciously accused Daniel and they cast them, their children, and their wives into the lion's den. They had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Which tells you how hungry those lions were. It's obviously a severe punishment. It bothers some people. I can't believe that's in the Bible. Well, it's history, dude. That's the way it was. And as a matter of fact, Medo-Persian law called for this. The ancient writer Marcellinus said about the Persians, the laws among them were so formidable that on account of the guilty of one, all of the kindred would perish. So one man commits murder, the family is killed. That certainly would cut back on some crime. I would think. But there is a principle here regarding spiritual battles. And that is that the enemies who come against you will often be ensnared by the same trap they set for you. The same thing they try to use. Psalm 7, verse 15. He has dug a pit and hollowed it out and has fallen into the hole which he made. His mischief will return upon his own head and his violence will descend upon his own pate. And by the way, where does Satan end up at the end of this age? In his own den. He goes down into a den. Revelation 20, verse 1, I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Satan in the den. Caught by the same types of traps he's used on others. So the the charge of the lion will land on his own head. Verse 25, Then Daryavesh the king wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language who are living in all the land. May your peace abound. I make a decree that all that in all the dominion of my kingdom men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. He is the living God and enduring forever. And His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed and His dominion will be forever. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Have you noticed that every single one of the first six chapters of the book of Daniel ends the same? The government comes against Daniel and or his friends and at the end of the chapter, the government or the ruler praises the Lord. Royal decrees are signed and spoken, honoring God and declaring His kingdom eternal. I love that. The book of Daniel reminds us of this. This is the canvas on which the glory of God and of Jesus and His kingdom is painted with dazzling colors. Even as the kings and the rulers and the governments and the lawmakers of man come against those of faith. That's simply the backdrop because the proclamation of the kingdom of God will be made. Always is. It's always declared. Now I want to end with this question. I want you to think about this before we go this morning. What was it truly that shut the lion's mouths? In the Hebrew Hall of Faith, the writer speaks of Daniel, among other prophets, Hebrews 11.33. He says, "...who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions." Now, Daniel was an extraordinary man, as we've talked about. He prayed humbly and biblically and continually. He was extraordinary in supplication and in scent and steadfastness and standing and spirit. In all of these things, a remarkable man. However, Daniel wasn't saved by Daniel. He wasn't saved by the right words. He wasn't saved by the right prayer. Daniel wasn't saved by the right heart. The power unto salvation, the real focus of this whole story, is the one in whom Daniel trusted. Verse 23 tells us, because he had trusted in his God. But that that needs to be made clear to us for this reason. And I have been guilty of this. Sometimes when we pray, we appeal to our faith 
or the faith of others. We appeal to our innocence in a situation or the innocence of others, to our goodness. Lord, He's such a good guy. Give Him a break. Lord, He's been so faithful to You. Help Him out. Lord, He trusts in You with His life. Would You please spare Him this difficulty? And in all those cases, it's absolutely irrelevant. Because the power that saves is not what we have done in our lives. It's not how extraordinary we have lived. That is not what buys salvation. Grace. Ephesians 2 verse 8, By grace you have been saved through faith. And that's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Our righteousness is never the issue. God's righteousness is the issue. And I am truly trying to alter my prayers such that when I pray, I appeal to His righteousness and His goodness and His faithfulness, not mine. And not anybody else's. And you may be praying for the most faithful person on the planet. But rather than say, God, He's such a man of faith, would you help Him? Pray, Lord, You are so faithful. We appeal to You. We appeal to the One who is righteous. This story should be called Jesus in the lion's den. Because, well, I think He was there. Think back at verse 22. My God sent His angel and shut the lion's mouth. The word angel, malak, simply means messenger. doesn't have to be a cherubim. doesn't have to be a four-faced being with eyes on His wings. He just sent His messenger. Who is this angel? I believe He's the fourth man in the furnace. I think, and I can't prove it, but I think it was Jesus who shut the mouths of lions. I can tell you this much, He still shuts off the roar of the enemy. He still stops Satan mid-charge. That is still the work of the Lord. And how does He do it today? By going into the lion's den Himself. Daniel prayed. So did Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the Daryavesh saw no fault in Daniel. Well, Pilate saw no fault in Jesus either. Verse 17 tells us that a stone was set over the lion's den. In the same way a stone was rolled over the tomb of Jesus Christ. But the most compelling thing to me is, listen to this, in Psalm 22, the Psalm of the Cross. Psalm 22 is that psalm that begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22 is a psalm that says, verse 16, They pierced my hands and my feet. Verse 18 says, They divide my garments among them, for my clothing they cast lots. Psalm 22 is an amazing prophecy of the crucifixion of Jesus. And in Psalm 22, the Spirit of Jesus says, verse 13, They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and a roaring lion. Verse 21, Save me from the lion's mouth. From the horns of the wild oxen you answer me. I will tell of your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. Jesus in the lion's den is what brings about our salvation from the lions in the world today. Amen? There are all kinds of lions in the world. People gunning for you. People on the charge. Those who belong to the pride of the enemy. That loud-mouthed lion who's out there roaring, stirring it up, prowling, seeking to devour. But I remind you, they're just lions. That's all they are. Jesus Christ is the one who shuts the mouths of lions. Let's pray. Father, bless Your name. Praise the name of Jesus as King of all the other kings on earth. King of the rulers. King of all majesty. King of the heavens. Beyond the universe and the skies. The great and glorious King Eternal. We lift You up and worship You and praise You. And we recognize that in this world there is a growing roar There is a louder sound. The charge seems to be more often. And yet, may we always remember that You shut lions' mouths. And that we don't do it by our faithfulness. 
And we don't do it by our righteousness and our goodness and our innocence. You do. And we come trusting in You, Lord Jesus, to go before us. Father, You said, I am Your shield and Your exceedingly great reward. And I pray, Father, for us as a a fellowship of believers that we would trust and know and believe that. Lord, if there's someone here this morning who is struggling with unfair charges at work, unfair attacks in the public sector, Lord, would You just go before them and shut the mouths of the lions? And Father, would You restore in us our trust in You, our faith in You, Establish in us a consistency in prayer and supplication. And let us not look to the, to the example of Daniel, but Lord, beyond to the greater example of Jesus, who is the greater than Daniel, the one we worship, the one we serve, and the one by whom we are saved. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.